The business of culture, the culture of business, creatives, media and technology, policy, markets. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. What's happening now is suddenly people don't know what the limits will be. How high can yields go? How high will inflation be allowed to rise? There's a lot happening. There's a lot unfolding and unfolding very quickly that nobody has seen. It, it, many in their in their professional careers and, and, and also maybe even in their lifetimes. So here it is, the great bond market route of 2022, with persistent inflation vexing the Federal Reserve, creditors, and investors the world over. What does it all mean, and how bad can it get? Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast, NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com, FullDRadio.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to my listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can message me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me from the Bloomberg News mothership on the Upper East Side or Midtown Manhattan, my old digs, is Lisa Abramovitz. She's co-host of Bloomberg Surveillance every morning on Bloomberg TV and Bloomberg Radio. She previously co-hosted Bloomberg Markets. Lisa is an all-purpose fixed income guru. I've been reading your stuff in Bloomberg Opinion for years, and I'm so excited to finally have you on this show during this epic bond route. How are you? Good. How are you? Thank you for that. I'm all right. Look, for a public radio audience, it's kind of difficult to illustrate why the bond market is orders of magnitude more important than the stock market. I mean, we've had we've had stock sell-offs, we've had taper tantrums, various things, I think, in my investing adulthood, but nothing like this bond route. If you could illustrate for us why it's so shocking when bond yields creep up by two points or three points and everybody's worried about the Fed and inflation. Well, first, when you say creep up two percentage points, that's not creeping up. That's more than doubling based on where we had been. And it's a magnitude difference of near right. zero rates for so long. So, And it's not just two, it's three percentage points. I mean, this is dramatic shifts at a time when people suddenly have to reset their understanding of inflation. I mean, for years, people had just expected inflation to never come back, that it died, and that you could print money and distribute it from a helicopter, and it wouldn't make a difference because structurally, inflation was over. And then it wasn't. And all of a sudden, people have to completely readjust their assumptions about the cost of money, about how much it actually will uh, be to borrow to buy a house to buy a car, to borrow on your credit card. And it's a complete rejiggering of the financial system as it has been known over the past two decades. Here's the deal, though. 4%, let's talk about a 10-year treasury or a two- or five-year treasury, 3 4%, 5%. When we talk about the last time we had anything like this inflation in the heyday of Paul Volcker 40 years ago, the Fed was taking rates up to the high teens. I mean, that was a whole different 
felt like hyperinflation. This, if you plot it against the the long term, you know, the the Fed's main interest rate or long term treasuries, it doesn't seem in absolute terms to be that painful, and yet it is. I think because of the 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 velocity with which it's happened in the in the short distance with which it's happened, and we're only I say what a year or year and change removed from zero interest rate policy. One one reason why, if you take a step back, and and you started the the interview by asking about why this market matters so much more than stocks, why uh, why it matters so much more than some of the other asset classes, and I would argue that over the past few decades, an incredible amount of debt has been sold, has been issued, has been taken out on the heels of the incredibly low rates. There was an assumption that money was free. And so there are all of these re- there are all of these obligations that have to either get refinanced if people can't pay them back or paid back. But a lot of people are not used to paying things back. <laughs> They've been used to refinancing for mm. uh, very cheap levels. This is built-in leverage that's different from the financial system leverage. So what the argument is is that interest rates of 4% today are incredibly different than interest rates of 4% in 1980, when the debt market was magnitudes smaller and the expectation of financing on debt was magnitudes less significant than where it is now. So a lot of people are saying that this is suddenly foisting an element of discipline on markets and also on fiscal policymakers that hasn't been seen for decades and that we have to deal with the legacy of all of this debt that's been issued. So what's happening now is suddenly people don't know what the limits will be. How high can yields go? How high will inflation be allowed to rise? Because right now people are worried about the systemic shock to yields getting too high of the short term for basically central banks foisting those kinds of rates on an economy that's over leveraged. And, and I think that that's really the fear here. And if you take it, you know, down to again, you asked about the stock market. People bought stocks because they were earning nothing in bonds. There was this whole there is no alternative, right? That you at least get some kind of coupon payment from dividend payment, dividend paying uh, stocks. It seemed to be fairly consistent, although not guaranteed like bonds. Um, and you had the potential upside, and you weren't getting anything in bonds, so you might as well, right? That's no longer the case. You're actually getting real yield from bonds. So people are saying, well, suddenly we have to get more for the risk that we're taking in stocks because we're actually earning something on bonds. I mean, it re. But Lisa, how is that a real positive yield? Let's say a bond that's yielding 4% right now, a treasury that's yielding 3.5% versus what's the headline inflation number that you accept? Is it 8%? Is it 7.5%? Even if it's clocked at 6%, aren't you earning a real negative yield? The re- <laughs> it's a good point. And whenever I put, you know, charts out on Twitter saying the real yield is positive 1.3%. Oh my goodness. I get lots of comments saying, you're crazy. No, it's not. You're looking at the wrong numbers. It's deeply negative still. And if you look at the current inflation rate, the headline CPI, even the core CPI, it's still deeply negative. However, if you take a look at what the expectations will be, say, over the next 10 years for inflation, and you use those market-based expectations and you subtract that from the nominal rate that you're earning on treasuries, that's the measure that people look at as the real yield. So it's inflation, what it's expected to be over the next 10 years. So I think that's that's sort of the the equation that people are looking at. Now, you could, and, and many people do, argue that the 10-year inflation expectations 
are incorrect and that they're too low, they're too high. I mean, people come out with different expectations and this is what makes a market. But what people are looking at is that whatever way you cut it, you're actually earning more. And you're earning more at a time when people have fear and they have fear of the lack of profits that companies may feel in an era where they cannot just borrow money to expand and they have to actually prove that they can make the earnings that a lot of people are baking in to their valuations. Lisa, I want to quote something from Bloomberg. I think one of your markets reporters posted it earlier this week, and it kind of had my eyes bulging out of my cranium. There's another $18 trillion in deposits at U.S. commercial banks, according to Fed data. In fact, U.S. banks are sitting on about $6.4 trillion of surplus liquidity or excess deposits relative to loans, up from about $250 billion in 2008. While the bulk of it is in checking and savings accounts that earn much less than what money markets pay, it's a testament both to the sheer amount of stimulus doled out during the pandemic and how hesitant people have become to invest it. It seems like a great problem to have on the one hand that there's those dry powder and cash on the sidelines. It's almost become cliche. But if you're Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, you kind of have to mop this all up after an unprecedented shock and PPP loans and all sorts of stimulus that went out. We we had to keep the economy together in the absence of business interruption insurance. But how do you even, which playbook do you go to to, like, how do you soak up, mop up all of this money? Well, you take out some of the ability to borrow more for free, or you take out some of the uh, the, the money that's flying around in, in the monetary system. Basically, and this is the uncomfortable truth. This is this is where it really goes, and it's not something that anyone wants to say or hear. People have to lose their jobs, and that was essentially the message from Fed Chair Jay Powell: was we want to see more slack in the labor market. We want to see a looser labor market. Well, what that means is a higher unemployment rate. What that means is people losing their jobs. And this becomes incredibly difficult and controversial and politically fraught, especially into the midterms and after the midterms into the next presidential election, when suddenly you have a Federal Reserve that is using one of its last tools left that it can use at this point, which is to cause the economy to weaken to the point where people need to go out and earn money and aren't willing to spend to the same degree uh, and or use their savings to, and spend that in the economy. That's a deeply uncomfortable place to be, mm. but that's where we are. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Lisa Bromovitz. She's a fixed income guru with Bloomberg Surveillance, one of my favorite bylines. You've seen her as a columnist and reporter at Bloomberg who focused on the credit markets. I got to ask you, the modern Fed is more than 100 years old. And why are the tools or the arrows in its quiver so blunt? I mean, why can't it go out and target you know, promiscuous lending or housing in particular? Why does it still boil down to one main interest rate and asset purchases? Because in this case, you're going to have a lot of collateral damage. There are a lot of things you're going to snuff out maybe that you don't want to snuff out in pursuit of certain excesses of zero interest rate policy. Well, so, and I'm going to put it on my columnist hat uh, and 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 frame this a little bit differently, which is some people could argue that the Fed has expanded too far into other mandates because of a failure to act by policymakers who are elected. And you could argue that they were always pretty limited and they really pushed the envelope into what areas they could look at and the levers that they could pull. But at the end of the day, as we've heard Christine Lagarde of the ECB say, central bankers cannot pump more oil. They cannot solve wars. They cannot solve pandemics. 
and they can't, you know, you know, just by themselves juice productivity or provide childcare or have any sort of systemic fiscal programs that could add to, you know, a healthy expansion in an economy. So for years, there's been a band-aid of sorts by policymakers to offset pain by pumping more money into the system. And now they can't keep going because inflation is calling their bluff. Inflation is calling their hand. And right now, there is a real dilemma and a real discomfort because fiscal policymakers are also kind of tied. They can't borrow in the same way that they have in the past because it's more expensive to borrow. We're seeing this in the United Kingdom where they came out and they said, you know, we're going to cut taxes and we're going to spend an unlimited amount to uh, stop the blow or, or to, to cushion the blow from the high energy prices for households around the United Kingdom. And what market participants said was, yeah, who's going to fund that? Not us. And they fled from that market, so much so that the Bank of England had to intervene for financial stability purposes. Now, this is not a comfortable place to be. We're looking at a pound that's plunging to new record lows, and they're trying to figure out how to achieve growth while also fighting inflation, which is almost an impossible task. So it's a Sisyphean kind of battle that is a new regime around the world. And the UK is not alone in wanting both the growth that that people have gotten used to juicing through borrowing and through free money that is no longer an option anymore. So explain for our listeners why the strong dollar is so problematic. So rates go up here. Obviously, you get to invest in the U.S. currency, the readout of safety, the creme de la creme of the world, the greenback, and get real yield in the process. But that makes life difficult for not just Europe, but especially developing economies that have borrowed in dollars. I always would think that it would, the, a strong dollar would be a laudable thing. But why is it making life difficult for so many other economies? There are two or many aspects of this because it always hasn't been this way, right? I mean, a weak dollar could be potentially negative for other economies in a strong economy because of a strong global growth picture because then we'd be able to export more, right? And that would help our economy. So there's no absolute truth that a strong dollar is is good for the US or bad for the world or vice versa. It's the circumstance that we're in. And right now, this preeminent problem around the world is inflation. Every nation is dealing with higher inflation they've experienced in a very long time. So all of a sudden, if you have a weaker currency, that means when you buy goods from outside of your country and you import them, it's getting more expensive. So the stronger the dollar gets, the weaker the other currencies get in relative terms. But that- shouldn't the Brits be elated that if you're a, you know, you're a European multinational, you can export your wares to the United States more easily, more compellingly? So this is one argument, right, that basically ramp up production and use it to export as much as possible. Before we get into that, I mean, in the near term, it means still inflation is going to increase before you ramp up production, right? Uh, and you definitely are seeing them export the uh, the travel industry because everyone's going to Europe for for vacations because it's cheaper. But what you're seeing right now, and this is why it's it's a very difficult equation is in places like Germany and France, you have this energy crisis, and there's an increasing call to idle factories, idle, idle industries in order to preserve natural gas because they're running out of gas. They need to store it. So they don't have the same capacity to even increase production to then export, let alone all of the shipping disruptions, let alone the difficult staffing, because there's a real lack of labor in a lot of places. So there's so many aspects to this 
that make it a toxic brew, to, that make it difficult to view it as a positive. But you're right. I mean, eventually there will be that offset where you will get more visitors and you'll get more money through tourism and you'll export more goods more cheaply. But right now, it's difficult to even embrace that moment to increase exports because of what we're seeing uh, with the energy situation, with the employment situation, with the really tight labor market around the world. I'm quoting the Wall Street Journal. The worst bond route in a generation carried the yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury note above 4% for the first time in more than a decade on Wednesday before emergency moves by the Bank of England prompted the biggest one-day rally in more than 13 years. Uh yeah, I got to say, if if an outsider is looking at this headline, if you're able to look into the future and read the Wall Street Journal in September of 2022, a 10-year treasury at 4%, I mean, where were we in the early 80s the last time we had this kind of inflation? Am I looking at a wrong apples to apples? You know, my, my dad tells me stories about savings and loan CD yields at 16 or 17%, that it was truly making it prohibitively difficult to take out a mortgage, to have any sort of capital formation when you had the chance to park money in debt for you know something like the teens why aren't we seeing anything like that that uh that pull up in yields we'll take the housing market in particular if rates had stayed there then probably housing prices would be a lot lower than where they are right now because what you do is you would have people who wouldn't be able to lever up their purchases as much and would have either paid more in cash or held off on the purchases. It enabled people to reach a little bit further. It is that leverage right. built into the system. Because if you can borrow money at three and a quarter percent and you can put it down on an apartment or a house, and then you know that that house price is going to appreciate probably more than that three percent, three and a quarter percent, and you don't have to pay rent, you're basically getting a, a free ride to own a place instead of paying rent. That's you right. pay this. So, right. um, you know, it, it it increases the value proposition of buying a home using a mortgage rather than renting. If all of a sudden it costs 6.7%, which was the latest read just now crossing the border. The highest read in 15 years, according going, to the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, going back to 2007, all of a sudden your interest payments every month go up dramatically, especially because they're front-loaded, right? So all of a sudden, your monthly all-in payment looks a lot less affordable and it makes it more uh, advantageous to rent, which actually creates a near-term conundrum because then more people are pushed to rent and it actually keeps rents perversely higher for longer, at least in the short term. But here's the thing. It's not like Jerome Powell can come out and jawbone the housing market, which has been unusually hot. Some people say that America has a housing fetish. You saw the numbers during this pandemic of people taking second homes, of the shortage of supply, of millennials getting locked out. If he could, if he did have a lever to pull to make housing finance and housing finance alone more expensive, he would be justified because you could argue that it's a it's it's a too hot market and it's locking people out and it's fraught with speculation. You could argue he is doing that. You could argue that that's what's going on with mortgage rates going as high as they are and doesn't seem like they're moving away. I mean, they could be worse. They could go more aggressively right. by selling mortgage debt from their uh, balance sheet. And at the last Fed meeting, we heard from <laughs> Chair Powell basically saying, we're not going to do that which was news and actually gave a little boost temporarily to the mortgage uh, market. But all in, I mean, that's partly by design. And you are seeing a pretty rapid deflation, at least in the pace of increases in housing prices. And some would argue around the margins, you're seeing a pretty rapid deceleration uh, and actually declines even outright in certain areas in housing prices. But again, again my, and I'm not trying to be, you know, I'm not trying to sound 
coy about this or anything, but a lot of babies thrown out with this bathwater because if you're trying, if a parallel purpose is to make housing more affordable generationally, it's not gonna not gonna do this. There are people that had proper mortgages and availed themselves of what three three and a half percent loans that are locked into this housing market, and very few of those people who were locked out can avail themselves of a seven percent mortgage right now. Right, and this is the argument: is that right now they're a tale of two housing markets: the people who bought pre uh, 2022 and the people who are locked out post-2022, and that that's how it's going to be for a while, and it just widens the divide of the wealth gap even further, right? So there is this whole argument exactly to your point. What's the other solution? And this goes to your whole point about a a blunt cudgel, right? That, That basically... They're just taking a hammer to this economy because they don't have nuance right now. They don't have a scalpel to go in and carefully select which areas uh, get hurt most as they try to just reduce growth and slow it in whatever tools that they have. And they don't have that much. Their tools are not delicate. That's more of a fiscal kind of package. But honestly, even that at this point, that ship has sailed. And you're seeing that around the world. I mean, you see like, for example, in Germany, some of the responses is to nationalize energy companies. I mean, people are trying to basically say, look, we don't like the markets and what they're doing right now. So we're going to try to take control ourselves. And it doesn't work that way. And so you're seeing a big mess and you're seeing things fly all over the place in terms of valuations. It's, it's a very difficult moment right now. Um, so yes, a lot of babies are going to get thrown out with the bathwater. And I would argue that in six months, you'll be you know, talking with someone, you're going to say the baby that was really thrown out with the bathwater was an unemployment rate much higher than four and a half percent. And people who might have a harder time getting back into the employment market and going back, going back into history, like it, with 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 a history's mind eye in 2032, are people going to look back and say that was a price worth paying? TBD. We just don't know. Are people looking back in 1982 and saying that was a price worth paying by sending the economy into a deep, deep recession in the early days of Reagan? You set up, as your sources tell you often, one of the best equity and bond bull markets in history that led up to 2000. Some people are arguing the same thing could be set up now. Others argue this time is completely different and that what you're going to face off is a decade of lost earnings in, in the equity market and kind of meandering equity returns. Um, and part of the reason why is because people say, we're facing stagflation and there's not an easy path out of here. It just isn't. And so, you know, basically you're not going to see returns normalize after bringing forward earnings so much, which is what happened with uh, with stocks during the very low interest rate Period. So the you know some people would argue this is very different, and I hear more of that kind of tone than the other. But again, there's a bear everywhere you look right now. People are very pessimistic, and sometimes just to be a contrarian, sometimes that means the opposite, right? So, so right. I'm not I'm not a stock picker, but um, just to sort of express the gloom and and some of the fears about the longer term trajectory. I mean, they're they're just. One more thing with respect to a longer term stagflation kind of environment, people point to the deglobalization of the world, the fact that the factory to the world, which is China, is becoming more isolated, that you're seeing a more reshoring type of shift, that you're seeing an aging population. There's some structural reasons that people are saying we are going to face higher inflation more persistently and lower growth. Lisa, uh, I want to talk about institutional memory and that when I speak with sources, there are very few people on bond desks that were around at the time of bond vigilantes and stuff that happened in the 1980s. It almost seems fabled. And now that you're talking about Volcarian inflation, look, there have been so many articles in Barron's, in Fortune. You can go back and 
you know, do a great Lexus Nexus search that the 20-year bond bull market's over, the 30-year bond bull market's over, the 40-year bond bull market's over, the easy money's been made and we've had to face inflation. And I wonder if there's an element of cry wolf that has made investors and borrowers just complacent. So many times it's been easy to say, look, this is over. It's 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 stuck around for too long and we can't take this profligacy for granted anymore by central banks and, and fiscal policy, but it seems to have finally caught up with us. So I'll just quote um, Jim Bullard. He actually came out today in a speech and he said he thinks that the market's getting the message. <laughs> so he thinks that the market route uh, indicates that maybe they are taking the Federal Reserve seriously. And that's a shift from earlier in the year when people were saying they were using the pivot word, which is at this point, just absolute jargon, but basically saying that the Fed was going to reverse course and not raise rates as soon as the unemployment rate went up and that it wouldn't be as significant as they were saying, that they were crying wolf. And what we're seeing right now from the market is they believe the Fed will raise rates to four, four and a half percent, even beyond. But they also believe that it's going to cause a pretty big downturn. It's not going to be a positive. It's not going to be a boost to the economy and a boost to the markets because it requires there to be such a significant deterioration of the economy for the Fed to respond that way that it's not good news anymore. So I think that Pavlovian response that you're talking about has gotten beaten out of people. But to your point about institutional knowledge, there is not a sense on trading desks that anyone's lived through this before, certainly not very many people. So it's very difficult to know. And I was speaking with one institutional investor who actually is a veteran of this market. And he said, on days like what we've been seeing over the past couple of days, my traders take a step back and they don't do anything because there's no way to trade this. Finally, is there, is there still such a thing as a bond vigilante? Do they exist? Have you ever met one? Can you introduce me to one? They're really fun. They're light. They they party with a book. Um, no, <laughs> um, it's funny because actually more people are talking about bond vigilantes coming back. Eddie Ardenny, who coined the phrase, actually said they're back and very much. Well, demanding. these are people who punish who punish borrowers or U.S. or whoever for for monetary and fiscal profligacy, and they send yields ever higher. Punish or demand more compensation because they foresee bigger risk. And right. suddenly, they're, for, they're seeing bigger risk. And you could argue that for a long time, the risk-finding purpose of markets when it came to sovereign debt was completely destroyed, was butchered by Fed policy, by central bank policy around the world, because they'd buy all the bonds and they kept rates low. And so they had a, there was a backstop. No one had to actually do the price discovery work. And bond vigilantes are the price discoverers, right? I mean, they're the ones that they can go out and say, all right, actually, there is a risk, especially if you're borrowing a lot and you have all this debt and you're printing money and you don't have a reliable policy, both on the monetary side or on the fiscal side. We don't like this. We're going we're gonna to cause you to have to pay a little bit more to borrow money. And, and that I, that's what I think the bond vigilantes are. And, and for sure, there are many more people who are able to do that now with central banks backing off and not kind of putting their thumbs on the scale. Full disclosure, do stay with us. Full disclosure podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fulldradio.com. You can catch me on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, you name it, at Full D Radio. And a shout out to our listeners on Virginia Public Radio, WVTF, Virginia's NPR news station. Holler if you too would like 
full disclosure on your air. We're talking to Lisa Abramovitz of Bloomberg Surveillance. She is, to my mind, one of the smartest bylines in, in fixed income coverage. I've been reading your stuff uh, for years, and it's just so astute, whether we're talking about the taper tantrum of 2013 or uh, moral hazard or taking rates to negative levels. I, I want you to close us out in the few minutes we have left with you with, with certain things that we should be paying attention to in this mega headline of this epic bond route. My my colleague, my co-host, Jonathan Farrow, this morning opened up the show and he said, what's the consequence of having the biggest risk in the risk-free rate in debt that's perceived as risk-free? And that was the right point to raise because every financial crisis that's occurred, for the most part, happens insecurities perceived as safe, right? It was the AAA rated mortgages in 2007 that were anything but it was, you know, just always through history. That's where the bubbles build because people don't even realize the risk that they're taking. And what I'm worried about right now is a financial system seizure that becomes difficult for central banks to stand by and watch. And that's what we saw at the Bank of England stepping in because of potential market dysfunction and the potential for the pound to not only drop, they were less interested in that, but guilts, right? The sovereign debt absolutely imploding. I mean, incredible volatility, unlike you know anyone's ever seen before in that instrument. But here's, the- here's what I don't understand. Isn't there a certain exceptionalism to US debt that when things go wrong, whether for inflation or recession or financial crisis or pandemic, the world over, investors pile their money back into US treasuries because it is the redoubt of safety, then sending our yields lower? In a word, no. And this is sort of the big myth that people are discovering, that a lot of the holders of that debt are, for example, you know, the Japan government or the English government or English institutions. And suddenly, if they've got margin calls, if they're looking to sell some of their foreign currency reserves to support their currencies to prevent their inflation from getting too much higher, they're going to sell treasuries. And that's what's happening right now to raise money. They're looking for their money back because they need it right now. So all of a sudden, the American exceptionalism works against it because the world has viewed it as full faith and credit and getting your money back. And suddenly, if you don't get your money back, well, it's going to be rough and it could trigger even more margin calls, right? So at what point is there some sort of systemic risk that people haven't even appreciated because of uh, everything getting turned on its head? And I think that that's, I'm not saying that there's going to be a financial crisis in the treasury market, but sometimes there is an underappreciated magnitude of risk, like what we saw in the United Kingdom and certain leveraged instruments that were tied to guilts uh, that, that just create spirals. And and my issue is, and my concern is not that the market will come to a halt and we're going to need to bail out the US government. My concern is this will prevent central banks from stymieing inflation as much as they might otherwise wish to do, that they will be forced to reverse course on some mm-hmm. levels to prevent the financial system from failing. And then we get a more protracted bout of inflation where the central banks can't really target it as well as they'd otherwise be able to do. So you get an even greater stagflation over the next decade. That is my concern, spurred by some of these systemic issues bubbling to the surface that prevent central banks from taking the action that ultimately most people think that they need to take. 
You are listening to Lisa Abramovitz, co-host of Bloomberg Surveillance. Every weekday on Bloomberg TV and Bloomberg Radio, you are, to my mind, uh, the most essential voice in in fixed income analysis <laughs> in, in business journals. And I'm so flattered that you finally came back on my show and you're welcome to come back on anytime. Thank you so much, Robin. It was a pleasure. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fullderadio.com, fullderadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle fullderadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can message me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me in studio is Chip Huey, CFA. He is Senior Vice President and Managing Director of Fixed Income with Truist Wealth. Truist is, of course, the seventh biggest U.S. bank. It is a combination of the merger of SunTrust and BB&T. Scott and Stringfellow, how are you, sir? Hey, Robin. Great to see you. Thanks it's for having me. great to have you back. So here it is, finally, uh, the big epic bond route that we've been warning about for years. Everybody, you know, you and I used to discuss this stuff. Uh, the bond bull market of 20 years is finally over. The bond bull market of 30 years is finally over. The bond bull market of 40 years is going to last 50 years. Well, it's having its worst year, I think, at least since 1990. I'm quoting from uh, Bloomberg saying, the Bloomberg Global Aggregate Index of Government and Corporate Bonds has lost more than 20% since the end of December as it slipped into the first bear market since its 1990 inception. Bonds maturing in more than 10 years have lost 33%. And of course, parallel to this, the stock market is in a bear market. It's down about 22%. You very rarely see bonds and stocks collapse in lockstep. Why? That is the unique situation we find ourselves, that we're seeing this synchronized decline in the values across two asset classes that typically move in inverse of each other. And bonds typically provide that ballast in an asset allocation. That's one of their most valuable uh, properties is their diversification benefits. What we're dealing with now is the, the flip side of the stimulus coin, where uh, over the course of the past several years, beginning in, in early 2020, we had just a tremendous amount of monetary and fiscal stimulus flowing into, uh, flowing into markets and supporting the economy and trying to bring us through uh, you know, the, the really challenging times of 2020, 2021, and all of its COVID-related disruptions. What we're dealing with now in 2022 is the rapid removal of that support. And so whereas the Fed was sort of this tide that raised all boats in 2020 and 2021, now it, we're seeing that, that as that support is being is being pulled back, everything is moving in the same direction yet again, only this way, this time uh, in, the, in the opposite direction. In absolute terms, though, two, five, 10 year treasuries, you're not talking about more than 4%. Mm -hmm. I understand in relative terms, we were at zero in the worst of the pandemic. Right. But look, this doesn't even compare to the early 80s when we were in the teens. Right. The, the sort of the byproduct of the Fed's reaction was, you know, taking when we take interest rates, use the, the 10 year U.S. Treasury yield, when we take that down to 51 basis points in August of, of 2020. A half a point a half in the a, worst of the pandemic. That's right. A half of 1%. There's one of the uh, one of the byproducts of that is the removal of a of of one of the the other right the other important aspect of fixed income which is the income that it generates and so now what we've seen in other periods where we had these larger these larger periods of interest rates in the 70s and 80s and 90s right when we saw these these uh, these environments of larger interest rates that income helped offset any kind of negative you know price performance right as bond yields rise prices are falling. But now, because of the several years of historically low interest rates that we've been in, 
there's just not that typical income support in place, and that is what's making the the negative performance feel that much more. If pa- you were painful. someone who panicked and capitulated and bought a U.S. ten-year Treasury note, what at 05 percent in the worst of the pandemic panic, and the yields have now crept up to closer to four percent. Correct. Your bond has been slashed in value, right? To explain for our, our public radio listenership, the price moves inverse to yield. Correct. So. What are people out there just holding on for dear life, regretting that they did this? I mean, it was it was return of capital. It wasn't return on capital right. when we were worried about this global pandemic. Right. Well, I think that the, the I guess more on the on the good news size uh, side of the of the ledger is that because we have seen yields rise so dramatically, so quickly, right from a very very low baseline, you things like U.S. Treasury U.S. Treasury bonds are in a far better position to start delivering on those two mandates that we just touched on, on delivering better yields, you know, for portfolios, but also. When, when when yields are at these extremely low levels like they've been for the past couple of years, there's really no other place to go. It smokes people out of safety into risks. It, it's it's true. It's true. And and we have been uh, we have been advocating um, since early this year to start using using uh, that as an opportunity to start lowering risk because it, things had had rallied and become and had rallied to really really strong levels. And that's in that's in riskier corners of fixed income and also riskier asset classes in general. And now, is it because of the rise in yields that we have seen, we've seen a tremendous amount of relative value returning to really high quality fixed income. But what happens, Chip, if you go out and take a flyer on a 4% treasury? Again, I don't want to get into the weeds or anything, but the risk of that is the, the Fed has a lot of inflation fighting left to do. Who's to say they can't take interest rates up to 10%. Right. So th- that's that's not our expectation. Our our expectation is that the 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 Fed is the Fed has given very clear guidance really since the uh, the Jackson Hole economic symposium this summer. Uh, and it is not it, the, the goal is not to take to take uh, Fed you know the Fed policy uh, rates to those kinds of extreme levels. In fact, we've probably the reality is that the tightening that has already been unleashed from the Fed, we haven't really even seen the impact of that emerge yet. So that sort of course to something that extreme is not something you know, that we're expecting. And so to your point, well, what does that imply for for interest rates, right? As the Fed raises rates, what we, t- what we typically see is that as the Fed is raising rates, Things like ten-year U.S. Treasury yields—they tend to rise, uh, tend to rise along with the, that kind of policy action. But once the once the, the market starts to gain conviction that the end game is nearing, that the Fed is it has, is reaching that high point in where they're taking interest rates, you tend to see yields stop rising in in, in say U.S. Treasuries, and in that. We keep referencing U.S. Tr- the U.S. Treasury market, but that it's important because virtually all fixed income asset classes really are priced off of what U.S. Treasuries are doing. But here's the thing: is that when bad news becomes good news? Uh, you know, we're in this tricky part of the market where maybe the Fed can engineer some sort of soft landing, like they don't have to throw mm-hmm. this economy with beautiful three and a half percent unemployment into a deep recession, get unemployment up to ten percent to bring labor wages down. Is I guess at some point you start celebrating bad news if you're the markets. If you're a current holder of fixed income, you know that, sh- that paradigm shift would likely sort of reverse the, the, this rise in yields, and you would see demand really come come in strongly for the safe haven. Are you expecting a recession? So uh, our our expectation is now that more than likely in the in the first half of, of next year that uh, we will that we will uh, be entering a recession. Lisa Abramovitz mentioned this. This is it's it's very radioactive for someone to Jerome Powell to come out and ex- outright say that I need more unemployed people. Mm-hmm. But when you have a labor market that's this tight, restaurants, 
theme parks, movie theaters cannot staff anything. Right. You know, there are days where the kids are craving Chipotle and we go in and they just can't service us because there's nobody working. Right. Right. But you as the Fed want to micro-engineer higher unemployment, as controversial as that might be to state explicitly. Yeah, the the, the projections that just came out of the September Fed meeting about the, the rise in unemployment that's expected as a result of, of what the, the Fed is having to do uh, in order to uh, in order to address inflation, that projected rise in unemployment is 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 fairly consistent with a significant slowdown, if not a recession. I think that the the kind of game changer uh, was the previous headline CPI print that we received, right? The inflation data that we have just seen, where uh, a more pronounced cooldown was expected and it didn't arrive. And not only did the 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 Fed's statements get even stronger on on how they have to take a very myopic focus on their fight against inflation, but also the, the, the projections of where they would need to take interest rates rose. That's, that's just further tightening, further restrictive policy in order to, in order to fight em- enemy number one, which is inflation. And that's really when our thought process went from that the risks of recession are rising to now it's going to be more, it's going to be more difficult than not to avoid. Is the Fed credible? After all, a year ago, it was saying that inflation is transitory, and now it suddenly seems uncontrollable, and you're trying to, you know, sound a 12 alarm fire, and you can't seem to squash it. They definitely, they definitely are facing some forces that nobody uh, could have foreseen, and certainly the conflict in, in Russia and Ukraine it, it has, has been a part of that, and the significant you know, supply disruptions um, that, uh, that has also, that has also unfolded as a result. I, I don't think that the Fed has lost as much credibility as maybe you may hear in the, in the media. And I think the reason for that is that if you look at market-based measures of where inflation is expected to go from here, where's inflation going to be in two years, in five years, in 10 years? If you look at those measures, they have stayed really well anchored over the past several months as the Fed has really strengthened its its language and its intentions to bring inflation back down to a more to a more reasonable level. So what the Fed is doing strictly from an inflation standpoint, right? And and obviously the the other side of the equation is, you know, what is this perhaps, you know, going to result in in the economy and economic activity? What are we going to see as a result of this? But strictly from an inflation standpoint, what the Fed has done and is doing and is saying is working on keeping inflation expectations anchored, which is really important because if those if those become unglued, that's really difficult toothpaste to get back in the tube. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Chip Huey. He's a repeat guest. He's Managing Director of Fixed Income with Truist Wealth. Truist is the sixth or seventh largest bank in the United States, sits on a ton of treasuries and, and fixed income and holds many client hands. I got to ask specifically about institutional memory. We spoke to Lisa Abramovitz about it. Are there people that mentor you that you know pull you aside and say, I was at BB&T back in the late 70s. I was clipping coupons, son. You never see anything like it. It almost reminds me of that scene in Wall Street where there's a Charlie Sheen, the hotshot you know, insider trader broker, and the old guys are telling them that this other way we used to write orders out and call clients and confirm in person. It seems like there's a a reckoning with the past right now. We haven't spoken about capital I inflation much in this economy in at least 40 years. Yeah, I think um, that, remi- that reminds me of, uh, of the of Patrick Henry quote as part of his a part of his speech and his, you know, give me liberty or give me death speech here in Richmond. And that was a quote that said, you know, I have but one lamp by which my feet are guided. And that is the lamp of experience. Well, there's a lot happening. There's a lot unfolding and unfolding very quickly that nobody has seen. 
it, it, many in their in their professional careers and also maybe even in their lifetimes. And so there are to go back to periods, you know, in the 1970s and 80s is helpful in order to understand how markets reacted and how policymakers reacted to really strong inflation and some challenging growth uh, activity. And, and so there are insights to be gained from that. But today is different too. And so there's, it, it takes, it, it does take a great deal of patience in, in looking at what is happening today, especially with how rapidly it's unfolding. For my 17 year career, you know, I have been effectively, you know, experiencing a, what has been a pretty uninterrupted secular bull market in, in, uh, in U.S. fixed income. And we are now dealing with, uh, with a period right now where, you know, performance is, is a, a bit more, is a bit more challenging. But what I am more optimistic about is the longer term outlook for fixed income from here, given that now yields are productive. You actually have yields, whereas in the past finally, you had right. nothing. That's exactly right. You, you, finally have, uh, you, you finally have high quality instruments producing attractive yield. And also because they're not so suppressed by things like monetary policy, where that, that brings yields down to but these incredibly to low levels. But who's to say if Powell doesn't send the economy crashing into a deep recession, that they go back to the old playbook of slashing rates to zero? So that the institutional memory that, that to your point back that you mentioned a, a moment ago, we do feel like there will be scar tissue, if you will, you know, repercussions within within say the, the Fed in future monetary policy in not wanting to to create the possibility of this kind of inflation again, or at least encourage it. The Fed's not solely responsible for for things like this. It's a, it's a combination of many factors, but because of that. Uh, we do think that in the event of, especially a garden variety recession, you know, if, if that does if that does ultimately arrive, the Fed will be more hesitant to go to these really extreme uh, policy accommodation stances, like we saw with zero interest rate policy. We think that they will be that it will that it will be uh, a much more gradual process, more cautious process, because we know there are uh, you know, longer term effects that play out when monetary policy becomes so easy. They weren't thinking about this uh, when that we had the sinking feeling of the you know spring of, of 2020 and the pandemic. You felt like it was roaring across the ocean and about to hit here. We saw yields collapse. Right. And uh, risk the, the market quickly fell into a deep bear market. Unemployment snapped up to 15%. Right. The news was running reports of uh, people in bread lines, big long lines of cars in Texas and everything. It was one of those exogenous shocks. I'm metaphorically like an asteroid was hitting us. Mm -hmm. And you wonder, at that point, the Fed, yeah, I mean, if you take rates overnight to zero, you're, you're justifiable. But you're saying that this scar tissue will make them think twice about it now. Yeah, I, I think I think it will. I think that we're you know now that we're dealing with some really you know challenging ramifications of those decisions, and that's not that's not to criticize at all what what you know what we saw the Fed do in response to the the arrival of the of the pandemic. That was a necessary reaction to uh, to very extreme circumstances. But barring some some sort of you know t you know sort of tail risk event like that, uh, I, I think that the, the the Fed doesn't want to go back to you know, levels of that sort of sure. accommodation. And I think that you will see that with future policy decisions. Shouldn't this be a vindication moment for gold, hard assets, things that are supposed to hold or maybe even grow their value during periods of inflation? I mean, gold has had a, a pretty meh 10 years. I mean, even since we got our credit rate downgraded in 2011, Bitcoin hasn't held its value. Other stable coins, oil has been subject to the vagaries of Ukraine and everything that's happened. Is there, is there a true redoubt of safety? I mean, what is it? The Swiss franc or Krugerrands? I don't even know. 
I, th- I think a lot of what we're seeing, you know, again, is uh, there, there's just a tremendous amount of uncertainty as these sort of policy decisions are being changed. And it is fleshing out a, a strong level of speculation that we saw when money was when money was was very easy. The economy was on an extremely strong you know, recovery path. So I think we're going through uh, through a, a period now where you know, and it's a volatile and bumpy ride. But where a lot a lot of these more speculative areas uh, are you know are facing you know greater uncertainty and, and greater risk, and that's and that's what we've seen with the volatility. Where do you think the Fed's main interest rate tops out? Uh, right, right now, they're at the last Fed meeting that we saw in in September, they significantly raised the the. I mean, three quarters, three quarters of a point. You typically don't see that. You see them slash in right. a time of a plunging economy. But right to to have three successive three quarter point rate increases, that's that doesn't often happen. Right. So we do think that the Fed has further to hike uh, from from here. Uh, right now, it, it right now through year end. So we have two more meetings: one in November and one in December. Uh, that it's it's close it's close to between uh, the Fed expecting to raise interest rates by uh, e- by either an additional 100 or 125 basis points by by year in our expectations to see the 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 Fed by the end of its entire tightening cycle to take the Fed funds rate up into kind of the mid four range call it four and a half to 475 is ultimately where again it ends why up. is that painful historically four and a half four and a half percent you can go to the early aughts the 80s and everything. That would have been a very accommodative Fed policy. And I understand this stuff mm-hmm. is relative and we're in a more globalized world and everything. But again, the last time inflation was this bad, the Fed took interest rates into the teens. Right. What's different this time? I think it's all relative because it's because of the the interest rate environment that have been afforded to businesses and consumers. That change from where we've been, say, over the past several years or really even across the majority of the last cycle, that's a big change. That that's a that that, that is a, a a significant alteration in in borrowing costs. And so that that feels like a, a a larger jump than maybe it looks like on paper or in absolute terms. So you say in the mortgage market where certain people were able to get three, three and a half percent mortgages right. if you were credit worthy in the thick of the pandemic. Right. And now you have a mortgage rate the Wall Street Journal clocked at six point seven five percent, which is the highest in fifteen years. But again, it doesn't strike me as an absolutely suppressive mortgage rate, like people who couldn't get mortgages at 15% back then. Maybe I'm anchored to the inflationary stories of 40 years ago, but it still seems like these rates are in somewhat accommodative territory in the grand scheme of things. Am I wrong? Less so because of what home prices have done. Uh, you, you've you've seen an incredible incredible uh, advance uh, in in home prices, really nationwide. And so when when home values are are going up at such a quick a quick rate, you know, which is great for you know for for you know home household balance sheets, for instance, that's a that feels really good. But when but those home prices haven't adjusted even a fraction of how much of how you know downward with how much that they moved higher. So if you're still up at these really elevated levels in home prices, and then add on top of that a six to seven handle mortgage rate, that that's a that's very painful. And then, so even the, if the price were to correct and you're out there waiting on the sidelines, you can't necessarily afford a 7% mortgage. Right, exactly. Uh, you know, you have a few minutes left. Chip, close us out. What are the things that you're paying attention to, the secondary indicators, the things that clients are asking you? You've been traveling quite a bit lately. It must be an education for us, you know. As, as you and I have said previously, and I've said with Lisa Abramowitz, is how many Fortune magazine stories ran saying that this is the year that the epic bond market, bull market ends. Right. And there's an element of crying wolf to it. And people got complacent over the years and said that 
easy interest rates are just going to be a permanent fact of life. And that's not necessarily the case. Inflation is a very scary foe. Right. It has been, 2022 has been an acutely uncomfortable year because everything is moving in tandem and, and it's moving in tandem, uh, especially if you look across you know, major asset classes like you know, US equities and, and fixed income, they're moving the same direction to lower to lower values. That's not a trend that can be sustained forever either, right? The, the, the flip side of what of sort of what you were just discussing. One thing that we would, that, that we've been discussing a lot is the relative value in high quality you have fixed income assets as part of an overall allocation that relative value proposition has gotten significantly more attractive because the long-term returns of fixed income are very closely tied you know, to that income component. And now that the income component with these rising yields has improved, so too has the outlook you know, over the medium term for, fi- for, for, oh, for even, fixed income. Even, ec- you know, you're a holistic person, a equity dividend investor, something like a Verizon, the old right. Bell Atlantic, which I don't recall it ever cutting its dividend. Right. It yields 7% now. Yeah. And that's a function, you know, for our listeners out there, our lay listeners, if the Fed is offering you a 4% quote unquote risk-free on a two or five year thing or a 10 year thing, the stocks of companies are going to have to up their dividend game to attract you, to appeal to you. And that can be prohibitive for some, but it could also help investors realign their portfolios, get a certain income that they haven't gotten in decades. Right. It's true. And and what happened too, and you, you mentioned this earlier, is that over the course of the past several years, as we dealt with historically low interest rates, uh, it did encourage greater risk taking. And we saw that we saw that in, in, in many corners of, of financial markets. So specific to fixed income going into lower quality fixed income, right, where yields were higher because because investors were trying to meet their income objectives that were not being met by really high quality uh, fixed income. You have to kind of make up solutions in the absence. Ex- uh, that's right. And, and so and so our messaging over the over the course of the of the past year has been that as these really high quality you know um you know these high quality fixed income assets uh, their yields have risen for those that maybe got their longer term allocations more you know more out of out of line with their longer term objectives it was an opportunity to to, to bring that back into alignment and, and because you know, finally, high quality fixed income was starting uh, to provide you know productive outlets for these for these for investors. yield, actual yield, some some meat on the bones, if Correct. you will. Exactly, Chip. You know, uh, it, it kind of reminds me things got so sloppy at everything in markets a year ago that I was going to kind of NFT myself as a garbage pail kid. But I think that <laughs> ship has sailed, man. Chip Huey, managing director of fixed income at Truist Advisory Services. Love having you on the show, and you're always welcome to come back on. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's great speaking with you. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fullderadio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. Follow along on Twitter, Insta, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle Full D Radio. And you can catch me on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. <laughs>